father believes the power of it will go if you know what you're fighting. Oh, come and stay with us. Let's fight this thing out together. Power, I said. Power to walk into the gold vaults of the nations, into the secrets of kings, into the holy of holies. Power to make multitudes run, squealing in terror at the touch of my little invisible finger. Even the moon's frightened of me, frightened to death. The whole world's frightened to death. And welcome to another fun episode of The Fear of God. Here at this podcast, we discuss with fervor and passion and just a dash of humor that sometimes deserted, rarely populous intersection of the Christian faith and the horror genre. Um, with you right now is a longtime co-host Nathan Rouse. Typically with me is Reed Lackey, fellow co-host, fellow Gardner-Webb alumnus. Um, we usually record these things. I just, I don't, I, I'm waiting here for him. I don't see him anywhere. Um, I don't know if he's just, I mean, what are we going to, I don't know. I mean, I'm happy to just sort of chat the whole time um, and sort of talk about a little bit of what we're doing today and i don't really know how you end a gag about invisibility when no one can actually see what we're doing but read you're back there you are <laughs> i was at, at first i thought huh it would be really funny if i just started saying something but then i was like no i want to see where he goes with this gag i want to see how long he takes it and how he how he pulls it out uh, my only my only uh my only other option i wrote down was that you were uh tied up because you forgot the mustard but that's a real <laughs> deep cut that is a pretty deep cut <laughs> oh my gosh um, Reed. yeah hey man so we are um we are at episode 46 yep, yeah good job 46 and who who would have thought i know that right? low low those many episodes ago we would find ourselves here at 46 and in fact as I just attempted rather clumsily to allude to, we are on our penultimate universal monster entry, right? That, so exactly we have right. one, we've, we've got a movie we're pairing with this one, and then we've got one more universal monster and a companion to it. Um, but today, um, as I attempted to make reference to a moment ago, <laughs> we are discussing that lovely fellow, the invisible man. Um, before we do that, Reed, I just, I just got to know, like, what you want? <laughs> <laughs> what you reading? 
What you listening to? <laughs> you like that? You like that? You, did, you, did you really not know that's where I was going? No, I didn't. I didn't. It reminds me of two ago when you were introducing it and you made this like strange look on your face. I don't know what you're about. I thought you were building a big sneeze or something. <laughs> and then all of a sudden just broke into song. Oh, yeah, man. You did. Yeah. Well, um, I've got two. What you got? Uh, so I just have one. And, and honestly, I was reluctant to mention this one because I'm still a little bit on the fence about how I feel about the show, but. That's okay. My wife and I have started a, a relatively new show. It has finished two seasons, and we are making our way through the first of those. But it did get renewed for a third season, and, it, and there's enough in it that makes me curious about it. It's a show called Colony. Have you heard about Colony? Um, is that with Josh? What's his Holloway? Josh Holloway. Yeah, it's with uh, it's with uh, my son's namesake uh, from Lost. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it's it's a kind of a science fiction show, but there's a lot of mystery surrounding the particulars of this. But some presence some some group we would presume aliens has occupied modern day los angeles you could say some others others yeah have occupied los angeles and so there's a new regime in place and and uh what the deal is is that in the first episode josh holloway is recruited by the occupying you know regime to be what he calls a cooperator to where he kind of works for them. They've recruited his services. He's a former police officer. They've recruited him. He does not know that his wife is a major player in the resistance against the occupation. So that's what the entire show is about. She's aware that he's cooperating, but he's unaware that she's involved in the resistance. And so it basically is a suspense sci-fi thriller show uh, revolving around that premise. First couple of episodes didn't do much for me, but about episode four or five, it started to really pick up some surprises, and uh, it's not only got Josh Holloway in it, but it's also produced by Carlton Cuse. So, uh, yeah, that's funny. I thought he had a hand in it. Yeah. So, we'll, it remains to be seen exactly how we'll feel about it in the long run, but that's what we've been watching this week. My wife and I have been catching up with that. Um, cool. Well, I've got two I want. To, I, I've never seen any colony. I do like Josh Holloway. I like him a lot. But I'll, I'll, let, I'll, I'll let you tell me if this is worth getting to at some point. So, I did a couple of weeks ago uh, watch the movie It Comes at Night. Ah, um, yes, which I have not seen, but... Feature, well, like the good news is there's not really anything I can spoil for you because I'm still not 100% sure what I watched. <laughs> 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 um, but this is a new movie. It's it's billed as, you know, kind of a, um, you know, kind of prestige horror film. It's got Joel Edgerton in it. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember... The, the the other male actor in it is I don't know his name but um he I, I was only familiar with him he has a supporting run in the show Girls on HBO but this is the, this is one of few movies where I can understand if someone not enmeshed in kind of the genre and the stuff that we kind of run in run in the type of media we run in I can understand someone watching this movie and be like that's stupid I don't get it mm. because because now the further I've gotten from it, the more appreciation I have for it, but it ended. And I thought, I have no idea what I just watched. It reminded me a little bit of, if you've ever watched the wire, if listeners have ever watched the wire, the wire is just a show that now you've got five seasons. And I guess I can't remember, maybe it's 10 episodes per season. But when you start watching the wire, the show just doesn't care if you get it. It just doesn't like the, the, yeah. 
the writing, the way, you know, I mean, it's, you get the vague idea. Clearly it's about cops and drug dealers or something, but in terms of the actual plot and character relationships, it is really difficult in the first few episodes to get a handle on what you're watching, uh, right. which is very, very dense and academic from that standpoint. It reminded me a little bit of that in the sense that the movie never makes clear what that will Spoiler alert for some stuff here, but, but, but again, there's not a whole lot I can actually spoil of the movie. You're never really a hundred percent certain what the threat is. Um, you know, it's, it's very obtuse with some of its mm. relationships and what has occurred to project these people into the circumstances they're in. There's just a lot. It is very content with you not knowing about. And, and at first, uh, my first response to it was a bit of dissatisfaction, but not because uh, more because I felt stupid. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> it was like, I feel dumb watching this. I don't get it. Um, but the more I read about it, um, the more affection, I th- uh, affection might be a strong word, the more appreciation I have for it. So um, definitely worth checking, definitely worth checking out. You know, it it's hard to say if if I would say it's a it's definitely not a must watch in the theater kind of movie. You know, it's, it's a more thematic kind of cerebral experience than it is like a big, big screen kind of experience. I mean, it's fun. Gotcha. Movies on the big screen are always fun. My only other, what you're reading in this case, um, I've been doing some more reading than I have been for a little while there, but recently on NPR, I caught this author speaking and it sounded very intriguing and this will all make sense in a minute, but the name of the book is the trouble with reality, a rumination on moral panic in our time. <laughs> Wow. So like you like that? Right. Yeah. Well, actually it's um it is not as short as the monkey's paw was our content we covered last week, but I mean it's only about 90 pages which will make some sense if you understand that it's written in response to and in relationship to the events post election 2016. Okay. And it's not it's you know I mean it's on NPR some might say it's of a particular slant and and that might not be too far off base but uh the author is a a woman named Brooke Gladstone she's a co-host and editor of WNYC's on the media program but um it was fascinating and really kind of contextualizes a lot of you know for those of us who are extremely surprised by the events of November and in fact if not depressed by them you know it really contextualizes a lot of things um and helps you sort of get a handle on okay how do i feel about things and That's you know what yeah and it's it's interesting cuz it's not really from a faith perspective whatsoever but it kind of ends on this note of you know whatever comes empathy is required and so it was really interesting wow. um yeah yeah it was really cool anyway that's that's my um that's my two cents there Nice. Well, um, I'm, I'm looking all around and I can't really see how to go where, uh, where we're going next. I'm trying to, I'm trying to see what's, what's next on the horizon. And it's, it's, it's Nothing elusive. You can really see. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's something it's kind like, of intangible, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm just, Trans- like, translucent. Like, yeah. Like translucent? I just, like I'm Opaque, seeing it right maybe. through it. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah, it's not. It's not opaque. It's not. It's not no. opaque. No. No, it's not opaque. No. It's it's transparent. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wow, that was really dumb, <laughs> and I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> Reed, I really appreciate your your attempt, however meager. Uh, it was that, pretty that meager. Was, that was a that was a rather transparent attempt at a joke. Um, <laughs> you That's know, better for this. <laughs> <laughs> so, what we're talking about tonight is a creature from the Black Lagoon, right? You no. <laughs> 
do. No, no, no. We are talking about uh, 1933's universal classic, The Invisible Man. So, it's not something that's often uh, equated. You know, it's, it's interesting to me because of all of the, if people were just sort of trying to figure out the Universal Monsters at random, you know, they'd say Frankenstein, they'd say Dracula, they'd say Wolfman. They'd probably go next to Mummy, and maybe they'd remember Creature from the Black Lagoon. Invisible Man would be probably the last that would come to their mind, unless they were readily familiar with them. Invisible Man is not really something that seems like it fits in with the rest of the the group, the sort of the monsters category. Um, but it is actually, not tipping my hand too much here, it is actually my favorite of the Universal Monster movies. And still is, even after the rewatch. Like, it still is my favorite. With that having been said, and no pressure whatsoever, what did you think of it, Nathan? Um, I, I liked it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm trying, I'm trying to, there was nothing, um, secretive about that, that delayed response there. I'm just trying to process, um, my feelings towards it. So it was honestly a little jarring. Um, really? well, in the, what I mean by that is, the monster, the, the universal monsters we've seen thus far, this is going to sound funny because in light of Dracula, I feel like I'm about to say something in error here, but like this character is a real villain. Like, like, yeah. Oh yeah. He is a bad dude and does bad things. Maybe that's what it is. So you've got like your Dracula, which is a classical kind of monster in the sense of it, there's nothing realistic about it. Right. <laughs> which is makes it sound like I'm saying invisibility is realistic. I'm I'm not really, but but the violence that the invisible man perpetrates is very realistic. Yes. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, and no so, question. And so I think in that way I was a little like, wow, wow, this is a little on the heavy side. You know, everything else sure. has felt kind of kind of fluffy, kind of airy, kind of, you know, dated. I think incorporating this level of you know, he may whether he's visible or not, he is a man, a, a normal man inflicting this type of violence on other men and right. you know other folks is it was a little i don't know it was, it was i had this moment of like huh i had i didn't know the story i didn't know you oh, know what sure. the context of you know the character's affliction was and so right. they just they really run with it so so yeah i mean i liked it um i think maybe Another viewing would determine where it would rank for me. I still think for me, Bride is probably of what we've watched my favorite, you gotcha. know, just yeah. because it's really interested in some really rich elements. But I could, you know, I can see why the Invisible Man would would rank high up there for you. Sure. Well, um, so a, c- a couple of things about it, a couple of trivial bits. It's interesting that you talked about the character's villainy because counting on and off screen deaths, including the victims on the train. Dr. Griffin kills 122 people in this movie. Right, right. Making him categorically the most murderous villain in all of the Universal Monsters. Because, you know, Dracula, while we know him to be a a nasty vampire, in the course of the film, only claims like two or three victims. And then there's the brides, which we would assume they're victims beforehand. But, you know, Frankenstein really doesn't kill that many people. And, uh, you know, there's a sympathy to his character, even as it is. So, yeah, Griffin is alarmingly murderous in his uh in his path his reign of terror as it were well and i think to, i think to 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 draw a line between both of what we were saying there is you know again dracula you could make the case he's a quote-unquote villain but he is also just acting out of instinct right I right mean, it's, it's right. Uh, Frankenstein is just a sort of misunderstood creature. The Wolfman right. is afflicted by things beyond his control. He is actually not actually in control when he's the Wolfman. Sure. Um, right. The Invisible Man is 
a murderous human. Like he's, th- yeah, there's he's just no, kind, you know, you could say, oh, well, this, you know, the chemistry inherent to the, the whatever stuff he's taken is causing this. And maybe right. there's a case to be made there, but in many ways, he's very much in control of his facilities, you know, oh, absolutely. his faculties. And it's funny because the, the, like in the novel, and I have another comment to make about the novel in a second, but in the novel, uh, written by HG Wells, the, um, character of Griffin is insane before he becomes invisible. But I saw in that. the film, yeah. yeah, in the film, he's, uh, it's the chemicals that, that, that make him, uh, insane. What's interesting, I don't know if you stumbled upon this in your research, but the screenwriter, uh, when he was hired, he asked Universal Studios for a copy of the book and they didn't have one. <laughs> and, and so they, instead what they had was they had 14 different treatments from previous writers, including one that was set on Mars. <laughs> but the, so the screenwriter searched around and found a copy at a local bookstore and read it and thought it was the best possible version of this story. So he made his screenplay pretty faithful to the novel, as it were. There's uh, a few changes here and there, but really they're relatively minor, especially when compared to the adaptation of Dracula or the adaptation of Frankenstein. Invisible Man is very faithful to its to its source material. The, a couple of other just brief trivial bits. Uh, of course, it was directed by James Whale, who directed Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. It was directed following the success of the original, but prior to his being convinced to direct Bride of Frankenstein. And uh, speaking of Frankenstein, Boris Karloff was offered the title role, but he declined since the character would not be visible until the final frame. Actors. So he declined. I know. Well, and uh, I don't have this data, this, this, these trivial bits in front of me, but um, what I was reading was um, this particular actor was cast for his voice, right? Claude Rains. There was, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A very distinct, uh, he's, he enunciates very clearly. Uh, he's got powerful diction. The, uh, in fact, when the film was re-screened several years, I think in the 50s, Claude Rains took a family member. It might have either been a son or, or a nephew or something. Took his family member to see the film and the ticket agent like recognized his voice. <laughs> tried, yeah, I did see that. Yeah. Tried to let him in for free, but Claude Rains was like, no, I want to, I want to pay for my ticket. Uh, Claude Rains is the, I don't know if you remembered this or if you recognize the voice, but, but he is the, the, uh, Unexplainable, inexplicable dad of um, the Wolfman. Uh, That's funny because that, I thought, yeah, I knew I recognized the name. I, I actually yeah. didn't recognize the, the 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 performance, but I recognized yeah. the name. So he would later. That I, was, they, he didn't. He didn't look the same in the other one, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, the a couple of other actor callouts, and then uh, we can move into likes, likes dislikes. Um, so you probably you might have recognized Dwight Fry again, who played. Uh, Renfield in Dracula and played right. Fritz in Frankenstein. He makes a cameo as a reporter near the end of the film uh, when they're trying to figure out how That's to stop funny. the Invisible Man menace. Cool. It's, it's, it's literally just one scene. Um, but the other sort of cameo that made me happy is I had forgotten that Henry Travers is in this. He's the actor who plays Clarence the Angel in It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, he plays Dr. Cranley in this, and it just, uh, I don't know, it just makes me happy whenever I see that guy, because I just think, you know, an angel's going to get his wings eventually. <laughs> but uh, Maybe maybe one of those people on the train, you know. <laughs> it's maybe, who knows. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw another casting note at you, which would fall into my sound dislikes. Um, the lady in the saloon. <laughs> 
She's the worst. God, I can't. Oh my gosh, Una O'Connor. She. So that's the Bride of Frankenstein lady, right? Yeah. And, oh, and she's terrible. She is at her. She is at her screaming best or screaming worst what in the world. Oh my gosh. How do you, what's funny about it is my wife, who normally avoids these movies for their content and subject matter. Like I told her, I was turning it on. I was like, you know, yeah, it's, it's probably pretty tame. You don't have oh, to leave. Sure. Yeah. And then within five minutes, this woman is shrieking her head off literally for sustained seconds on end. And it's like, so my wife gets up and leaves. Like, I don't blame <laughs> you. I want to leave. That's awful. <laughs> Jeez, man. And when she's, it's so funny too, because when there's at one point where she just sets some water or something yeah. down next to her husband and just staring at him. And then all of a sudden it all starts again. Like, oh, there oh, she goes God, again. It's terrible. Shrieking. Oh, it reminds me of, uh, this is a leap, but it reminds me of Mark Wahlberg in The Happening. Like someone talked, <laughs> the director needs to say to this person, this is not working. <laughs> what is why, why is oh. this getting in here? Oh my gosh. Oh. Yeah, she's she's pretty outrageous. Yeah, that I had that written down, but honest for the life of me, it makes me laugh, but uh but it definitely it it would get on my nerves. And particularly the first viewing, I was the first viewing several years ago whenever it was, I remember taking note of like what is wrong with this woman? Like oh. it's, it's all she can do is just scream. But I'm surprised she was not the first fatality. <laughs> <laughs> she makes it. Jeez. She survives. Right, right. Wow. Right. Oh, uh, oh man. But you know, given that, with a couple of exceptions, there's a couple of scenes that that look a little dated and look a little hokey. But the the effects are surprisingly, no pun intended, effective. Like when he's unwrapping, when he's unbandaging his right. his head. Uh, that's that's great. I don't even know how they accomplished that entirely. But that's I mean, well before CGI, so it's a practical effect. But right. that that was really really wonderful. That's the magic of the moving pictures, Reed. Ta-da, yes. Welcome to Hollywood. <laughs> the last sort of like-dislike I have, which actually could act as a scare unless you have some more likes-dislikes. Um, I, I call it the reign of terror sequence. It's the it's the when he's full bore on the loose and there's search parties and people are locking their doors and bolting their windows. But he's, you know, catching people on the search party and killing them and just just his whole sort of reign of terror culminating in the train sequence that I, I just think that's really great. It's very, it's chilling and it's a, it's sure. a little unnerving, but, um, but I, I think that's one thing to your earlier point. That's something that, that watching these all in succession throughout the year, that's something that I've noticed we're missing from most of these films is a kind of a, Oh, this is the monster is loose sort of moment. There's a scene or two here and there in the other moments, but nothing like what you get with Invisible Man, where it's full blown like, oh man, he is on a rampage and has well, to. Well, because the other stopped. stuff is much more isolated. It's it's kind right. of one on one encounters and things like that. Right. Yeah. I, for for me personally, with you know, kind of likes dislikes, I, I do definitively dislike that actor's performance there, which is funny because like she perfectly works in the movie. Other than that, like. Oh, right, she looks, right, right. she looks like a, a saloon marm. You know, she, she, uh, just, just feels of a kind with the material at work and then does that. And you're like, ah, shoot her. <laughs> I hate, and I hate guns. Um, <laughs> I loved, I love the piano gag at the saloon. That's a lot of fun. You know, when you think he's playing the piano and oh. puts the, coin in two of my favorite scenes uh one is yes uh the the disembodied pants skipping down the road oh my um, gosh as he's singing <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, yeah 
My favorite, my favorite is the Keystone Cops when the head guy says, he's mad and he's invisible and he may be standing right here. And like this whole gaggle of cops just look around like squirrels, like what, what, here, where, what do you mean he's here? Oh, it's just so funny. Like just, just great, a great comic touch. Oh yeah. But yeah, overall, I think that, um, I did like the movie. Um, and uh, for me, you, you were brushing up the, up against this a minute ago. I think the only thing I wrote down for scares is kind of a general note. Just these, what I, the phrase I wrote was surprisingly violent outbursts. Like I just oh, not, right. not knowing the story, not knowing where the story was going to go. I was a little like, again, jarred is a good word by just his level of, and to use your phrase, reign of terror. Um, there's definitely some high stakes here. Um, sure. so yeah, I mean, I would, that, that's kind of the only thing I would cite as just a, a scary element. Well, the, uh, the only thing I would mention other than calling back to the first reveal of him unwrapping the bandages that that was pretty freaky. Um, Kemp's death scene gives me genuine chills. Kemp is the character who he sort of blackmails into helping him for a little while. And then Kemp goes to the cops. Right. Um, right. When the they. Yeah, when they orchestrate their plan, get him out to the car, and then suddenly yeah, Griffin is talking to him. I'm like, oh man, it gives me the chills because I can I can picture that now, and that's actually a diversion from the novel. In the novel, Kemp's character survives. Actually, he is threatened by Doctor Griffin, but he makes it out. So I was, it's, it's interesting that he it dies in this one. Uh, but I think that scene that scene might be. That one and when Dr. Griffin is first unraveling the bandages to reveal his invisibility, that Kemp death scene is it might be my favorite moment in the movie. It's it's really great. Well, what what to you? I mean, you know, articulate a little further if you can, as you assess these movies and we I myself and probably possibly some listeners still have Black Lagoon left. Like what to you raises the bar in this one over over the others? I think. One of the things that, that really elevates it for me is it feels very unlike the rest. Yeah. And maybe yeah. that's part of what appeals to me about it is it actually feels so the rest of them feel very old and very classical. They feel very theatrical. We've commented many times as we're having the episodes about the theatricality of these films sure. and the you, it almost feels at times like you're watching a play, which, of course, with Dracula, you were watching an adaptation of a play. So that's not far removed. And, you know, we, we've commented on that a couple of times. There's two or three settings, lots of talking heads, but there's an expansiveness to this story. This one feels much more cinematic. It feels more broad, uh, which is ironic, given the fact that this is the second in, or no, the third in chronological sequence. So if we were watching them in chronological order, we'd have gone Dracula, Frankenstein, and then this one. So this was relatively early on, sure. but I think that's what really appeals to me about it is, is it feels more like a, like a cinematic piece rather than like a theatrical piece. And, uh, and I think that combined with, we've already called out to, uh, he's, he's a proper villain. And that, that just for some reason raises the, the chill factor for me. Which makes it all the more impactful. Uh, plus, it is it is pretty freaky to think about. Like, I don't know if you saw this. It's an absolutely terrible movie, and if you haven't seen it, like, don't bother. But um, and listeners, it is definitely not the companion film. But have you ever heard of Hollow Man from like, yeah Kevin Bacon two thousand yeah Elizabeth yeah. Shue yeah. So I saw that film, and it's atrocious. But he does say one thing in there that maybe we'll come back to in themes, uh, which we can move into now if you want, but. Um, you know, Kevin Bacon has a line in Hollow Man where he says, 
it's amazing what you can do when you don't have to look at yourself in the mirror. And that, that idea frightens me. Sure. Like, and I think that's something maybe subtextual that's going on when I watch this film is right. this recognition in myself of like, man, if I knew I would get away with it, like if I knew I wouldn't right. be seen or caught, what would I be capable of? And it's actually, well, you're, yeah, yeah, you're, well, hold, put a pin there because I'm curious because you're, you're, di- you're swim- swimming into the pool. Um, I, <laughs> but before we go there, um, I know some of these universal movies have, Follow-up entries, is there any other Invisible Man material? Yes, not with Dr. Griffin. Dr. Griffin firmly dies at the end of this film, but there are future films, uh, The Invisible Agent, which is is really not very good. There's one called uh, The Invisible Man Returns, which I think I would need to look it up, but one of them stars Vincent Price. That, but yeah, there, there are, uh, a handful. This is, that's what I mean when I say this is, uh, one of the core films of of the Universal Monster series. Their Universal had several horror films that they never did a sequel to. Phantom of the Opera, they had The uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. The, those films they made and they would easily classify in the horror genre, but they're not core franchise films where there sure. were future sequels. But uh there there was to the Invisible Man. There were at least three that I'm aware of. Um, so that's what kind of constitutes in my mind uh categorizing this that way. Um none of them pack the punch that this one does in my in my opinion well you would you had started taking us into the 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 waters of the themes here so we can put our floaties on and and (laughs) and go into the deep end here um you know it's funny because to your point like you just used the phrase of cinematic versus theatrical uh to compare this to some of the other universals and i think that's relatively appropriate because in some ways like Frankenstein or Bright of especially like it feels like it's going for lofty, lofty ponderings. Right. Right. You know, like, right. Sure. Sure. So, so in that way it is kind of theatrical. It is more kind of culture. It is more, you know, what does it mean to be X, Y, or Z or whatever? Whereas the invisible man, it does, it feels like the intention is to examine this particular character and those sorts of thematic things just sort of spin off by default. Does that make sense? Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, and so it's, it's really interesting to watch it from that standpoint. So in that way, it is kind of cinematic. It's very as, as naturalistic as an invisible man is. It's a very naturalistic approach to the story, um, to these themes in particular. And it's funny. I wish you hadn't used this word a minute ago because I was proud of myself for bringing it in. It looks like I'm now just aping you. We'll get to <laughs> in a minute when you quoted Hollow Man, but, but I just wrote down that age old adage. The character is who we are when no one's looking. And I really hate that line, not because I don't find it to be true, but because of how true I do find it. And I would add to that. So I would say, yes, characters who we are when no one's looking and then would add the phrase, even ourselves, even when we aren't looking. Right. You know, and I, something I wrote down was, and this is where that word comes into play. Faithful living requires tangible presence in the mirror of your own life. Mm. Like you, you, you have to look back at yourself and, and, you know, interject as you want, but I'll, I'll run off at the mouth for a moment here, but yeah, please do. I was just pondering this because I'm with you. What's fascinating about this movie is when he, when he is up in the, in the saloon, you know, in the hotel room or whatever, you know, we call that place. Um, it's like a bed and breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Airbnb of 1933. Um, <laughs> he, 
this was the closest, the first time in one of these movies where I had like a sort of visceral response. Uh, and what I mean by that is you do start to ponder like what happens when you're untethered from, from tangibility. And, and you right. can say that on a metaphysical level, on an existential level, on a literal level. And, and the thoughts that, that followed out of that was that invisibility permits us to act on every impulse, mm. that there is no such thing as taking thoughts captive of meditating, of considering, you know, we, we think a thing and then we do a thing. And you, you may, you may challenge this notion a little bit, but I was just trying to create or, or imagine what is the analog of this sort of experience. And what I came up with was that, you know, in our current society, which is funny because of what the things we're using right now, I said in our society that keyboards and screens create invisible men mm. that when there are no tactile, tangible tethers to a physical world, our impulse control is non-existent. That, mm. and, I, and this, this was what was coming to me. I said, we become adulterers. We become pornography addicts. We become closet hateful racists. Oh, wow. That, yeah. that invisibility, the ability to say and do things without repercussion divorces us from the empathy required of a faithful life. Does that make yes. any sense at all? Oh, like, no, it absolutely does. Yeah. It, you know, we, we watch something like The Invisible Man and, and it's, you know, it's silly to see disembodied pants skip down a road. <laughs> right. But the implications of the whole thing, we, we, if, if we miss out on the implications, we're in trouble is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Because no, that, that, that movie is speaking as much to the possibilities in our current state of life and the world we live in than it would have in 1930 when science fiction like this is, is literally just fiction. Sure. You know, it's, it's, it's why we see people act out the way they do because they've been operating invisibly behind this computer screen for days and weeks and months and years, and then act out in the real world in response to the persona they've created in there. Does that make any sense at all? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because well, and we've talked before on this show about, integrating the physical and the digital self. And I don't know if I don't remember if we put it in those terms, but just making sure. those those two cohesive. And I can't remember if in fact, I'm pretty sure we didn't bring it up in this context when we had that conversation. But it is true that it's important to make your digital self match your physical self. But it's also true that one have more. It's important that one more have more influence than the other and that you understand that who you are in the digital world can't suddenly take over and become your physical world. Because I do feel like, and I don't know if this is precisely what you were articulating, but this is what I, this is what I heard and what was kind of firing off in my brain as I was listening to you. We do create neural pathways of least resistance to aggression, to uh, boldness, to be, we, we, there's this, there's this kind of mad power of anonymity. You look at a sure. message board yes. yep. where your name my name would not be Reed Lackey on the message board. I mean, it might be. I could put a new username and a completely different avatar and say whatever I want to say. Vicious, nasty, awful, hateful, terrible things. And you do that enough in the digital world behind closed doors. It's not going to take that much resistance to begin being that person right, right. outside, elsewhere. And it's just fascinating. Well, and, and to, to, to tie that into the movie, it's, you know, the progression is there. What starts is little gags and little silliness that he's playing on people. Right. Turns into wrecking a train and killing a hundred people. Right. You know, 
And which isn't to suggest that, well, maybe it is to suggest because, because I don't think the leap is far from what you're describing in terms of a, a lack of restraint, a lack of self-control, a giving over to impulse in the digital turning into acting out in the physical and sure. in the real. Right. Of course. You know, it's, it's, it's why after a Charleston shooting or after an Alexandria shooting, suddenly we're digging through these people's social media accounts to try right. to figure out what motivates these people because, because for better or worse, you are at your most, I hate even that this is a sort of reality, but you are your most you when you are anonymous. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And that's a really jacked up thing to consider. Yeah. It is. And it, it, it is frightening. But it is absolutely true that if you don't have an accountability to who you are, it was interesting. And I, I didn't know necessarily that the conversation would go here or I would have looked up a bit more research about this. But there was a there was an experimental theatrical experience that was done, I believe, in Chicago where, uh, gosh, and I wish I could remember the name of it. I heard about it on uh, Freakonomics, but they, there was a a, a Stage production where the audience comes in, you're not told anything about the experience or the story or anything, and you're given masks and you're told you're not allowed to speak, you're not allowed to take off your mask, and you're told fortune favors the bold. You're given those three instructions. You're not allowed to speak, you're not allowed to take off your mask, and fortune favors the bold. And then what the theatrical experience is, is these people would wander through this multi-floored warehouse where certain theatrical vignettes were set up. Uh, actors would be fighting amongst themselves or actors might be having sex. I mean, it was a very adult show. Uh, actors might be doing something uh, engaging in some sort of either pleasant and palatable or horrific, but the audience would move among them. And they said it sure. was fascinating to see, given the you can't take off your mask and fortune favors the bold, they said uh, there were security there who would step in to protect the actors if need be. But they said some people would try to, like, assault the actors and would, would start to get in, uh, not necessarily, like, to protect something they thought was going on, but because they knew they had a mask on their face and they would be, to some degree, hidden. Like, you don't know that it's going to be me right, who's doing right, this right. thing. And um, one of the things that, uh, piggybacking on one last thing that it made me think of, we would love to believe, and we frequently probably say, I would never do X, Y, Z. I would never do that. I would never do that thing. And I think we too frequently ignore the capacity of the safeguard of visibility. And that if, sure. if, we, if we are visible, there is that sort of awareness at present of like, hey, I'm being watched, I'm being monitored. But if that is taken away... I think it's important for us to realize that we are not quite sure how far we would go or what we were capable of if those safeguards were taken away. Because, and I'm thinking, you know, to get kind of more into specific Christianese, as it were, um, like accountability groups where people suddenly find themselves entrenched in, we were talking earlier about violent behavior or aggressive behavior, but also addictive behavior where people suddenly find themselves entrenched in things that they can't escape from, but they have no more power to break free from because they were frequently left to their own devices, to their own freedom, to their own privacy, and knew sure. they could do so with impunity. And so, it, it's, it, it's like, 
one of the things, one of the really frightening things about it is I have to ask myself, am I doing what's right because I know that doing what's wrong will get me punished? Or am I doing what's right because I want to foster goodness in the world? Am I doing what's right because I know sure. it is the right thing to do? It's the, it's the Matt Jamison conundrum. Yes. Like, why, why do yeah. we do what we do? And why do we, and why do we keep from doing what we know we should not do? Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's alarming. I feel like maybe I was kind of all over the place, but you're just, th- this subject is, no, is I big. mean, it's, it's a broad, yeah, it is. It really is. And, and at the heart of it is simply, <laughs> I say simply, at the heart of it is, why be good? You right. Know, because, because to not be good might, you might be visible to someone and thus you're now accountable for those actions or because you really aren't. I mean, these, these are broad, heavy questions, sure. yeah. you know, I, and, and I was trying, you know, to think of, because, because what's interesting about this movie or this, just the story, this concept, you know, cause we've talked before about kind of the invisible among us as a, as a, a sort of not to be invisible as a positive thing, but from a positive perspective, meaning there are those whom society just overlooks, whom the church overlooks, whom, we in our sort of middle class culture can easily overlook and maybe step on, you know, so right. there's, there's that style of invisible, but, but I think, I think this is something totally different. And I don't know, man, I just, I, I keep thinking about that. One of my favorite groups, and I haven't really listened to their stuff in the last five years or so, but for a number of years, the, the band Waterdeep and they had a mm. song. Uh, one of their songs was, and although it may have been the lead singer's solo album, but the song was called Everybody Has Their Secret Lives. Uh, yeah. And, and, and like, on the one hand, I want to rail against that. Mm, you know, right. it's like, no, you, you're supposed to be, not because he was saying something incorrect, but because I think he's saying something very correct. Sure, um, right, right. But this is, this is firing off so many different things, but, you know, something that, that haunts me is this notion of, you know, to your question of, am I doing this thing because I want to do good in the world? Or am I doing this thing because it makes me feel good to do good or whatever? You know, is it for me? Is it for God? Well, one, the fact that you can ask that question is a healthy thing. Sure. Um, right, right. But I can't get away from this idea that with invisibility, with anonymity, let's, let's couch it in our context. We're not going to be invisible, but we are, we do have the capacity to be anonymous in our digital comings and goings and even maybe in our, the physical comings and goings. But that meditation, that consideration for activity goes out the window mm-hmm. and that you become sort of a victim of your own impulse. This, this may seem an odd correlation and you can feel free to edit this out later if you, if it doesn't land correctly, but we're recording in very much the wake of the Philando Castile, uh, ruling on that from that police officer. Right. And, and, you know, I don't say this phrase glibly, but he kind of got off scot-free. Um, or rather, I don't say that cynically. It just is what happened. Well, the, I think the night of the, the verdict or the day the verdict came in, Castile's mother recorded this Facebook live video. And, and, and I want to be sensitive in how I, how I and how we end up talking about this, but it was very, hard and and heavy and tragic and sad. And there was this sense in which she was sort of resigned to because anyone can do anything and get away with it, go do whatever you want. Mm. And it was this really sad, scary kind of moment. Right. 
because because I watch it and got the impression she was basically saying, you know, violence in response is okay. Like like and 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 where I want to be sensitive here is this is a woman who is experiencing extreme levels of anger and sadness and grief that we just aren't going to know. Right. Not even just because her son was taken from her, not just because how her son was taken from her, but also because of what happened in the wake of her son being taken from her the way he was. Right. So I'm very, very sensitive to that. That requires a lot of handling with care. But all I could think while I was, and I, I, it was one of those things where I sh- kind of shouldn't watch the video, but you're kind of, it's, it is like a train wreck. You just kind of can't look away. And, and, but I kept thinking, no, 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 someone take this phone away from her. Yeah. Yeah. Be- because, because she needs to grieve mm. and she needs to express her anger in healthy manner, in healthy fashion and broadcasting for the world. Isn't that, but it's the result of anonymity. Yeah. It's you don't see me. Now I'm going to do whatever I want. Mm. Does this make sense at all? Yeah. 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 All? yeah. I, I think I understand what you're saying. There was a lack of meditation because she's in the dis- depths of despair to quote Anne Shirley. Sure. Like there, there is, I can't imagine a lower place for this person to be emotionally. No, of course. So because of that, she has permission to not have meditated or, 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 or gotten over anything yet. Right. But in, in those places is not the place where you start acting out. Is this making sense yeah, at all? Yeah. 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 Okay. If, if, so, so I'm going to stop talking a little bit so that I don't, you know, let me see if I can, let me regurgitate back what I'm, what I'm gleaming from it. And then you can, redirect or sure. course correct if we need to uh, because we have a false perception that so much of what we do is hidden from so much of the rest of the world or that we can do so in a in a hidden manner let's use the 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 means of 2017 broadcasting i'm sitting in a room right now talking to my best friend and it, it's just us i mean my son's in the house but it's just us right now having this conversation, but at some point he's he's getting neglected. And <laughs> <so it's> just <laughs> he's just playing. Um, but what what eventually will happen is this will go out onto the airways and it will it will go everywhere. Like everybody will hear it. If you and I were not actively aware of the fact that this will be heard beyond this room, we could very easily begin to slide into something that was a bit more destructive and a bit more uh, sort of raw. As it were, and some people sure. do that, and and a lot of times, what I get what I get scared by with the you know the Facebook Live or with the just social media presence in general, it's what I it's what I didn't coin this term, but I cannot remember where I heard it. It's keyboard courage, where like because you're sitting here, you're able to to do things more aggressively than you would if you were speaking face to face to somebody, and I feel like in the case of poor. Philando Castile's mother, like in the case of something like that, I feel like there can be such an inclination to want to express yourself, want to react to whatever you're experiencing or whatever you're feeling, to react to the situation, to react to the circumstance. And if we don't take care to make sure that our spaces are safe and to make sure that the outlets that we have for them are equally safe, then yeah we will we will perpetuate more of what we put out there in the world in other words we will we will sow seeds and we'll we'll sow the wind and reap the whirlwind as the scripture puts it and i feel like 
So when I hear you talking about or trying to articulate this, and again, maybe maybe I'm just fumbling through this, and and maybe maybe we should sort of pair around this. Let me, um, well, I've got I've got a you can finish your thoughts. I've got a I've got something. Yeah. So all I was going to say to to wrap a bow on my comment there is there's a way in which we can acknowledge that our name will not be known and our face will not be known, but then there comes a point where we engage with the outlet so often that that no longer even matters. So now it does not even sure. matter that our name will be known and our face will be known. Now we've just created the neural pathways to to just put that out there in the world. Right, right, yeah. right. Well, and and I, I want to try to put a button on where I was going with the the Castile reference because I don't want it to just seem like I was going all over the place without ending up landing somewhere, but I was working through those thoughts in real time. But sure. You to tie it into the movie. You look at you look at the movie in the film, insane or not, due to chemical exposure or not. Once he recognizes the power inherent to his invisibility, he begins escalating his acting out. Mm. This mother, not even necessarily interpreting incorrectly, has been told by a justice system from top to bottom that you are invisible. Ah. Uh. Yes. And yes. she recognizes that, realizes that, processes that, and basically says, all the rest of us are to do what you want. Right. Does this make sense now? Yes. Like, yeah. It was just this real scary moment of like, man, this is so sad and tragic and traumatizing. It scares me to, you know, this is what happens when a civilization, a society tells people through its actions or inaction, you are invisible. Yes. When you are told you are invisible and, and made to feel that way long enough, there's going to come a moment where you will start to feel some power attached to that because of your anonymity now. Right. Right. And this is what ends up happening. I don't know. Hopefully that makes a little more oh. sense than where I was earlier. Oh yeah. So, so now suddenly the, the pistons are more <laughs> readily, readily firing. Right, right, right. Cause, cause the idea that I get, back from that is oh well we're we're not being seen anyway so right. so so who right. cares i mean we're we're not like you say you know we're invisible to them anyway so do what you want because if we're not if we're not seen and we're trying to be upright citizens trying to do what we think we are supposed to do and we're not seen we're not visible then what what's the point anymore and uh, right. i definitely can perceive a scenario in which that that's what that fosters. You tell someone they don't matter long enough, then they're not going to. They're gonna. They're, it, it's like the it's like the other adage. It's like if you tell someone they're worthless enough, they're they're gonna believe you. They're gonna or right. you tell someone that they're stupid enough, they're gonna believe you. You know, and and except, except that the dark side to that, the flip, the other side of that coin is once they've believed that internally there's a capacity in which that's going to turn on you. And, and that's a recipe for really bad things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that my initial response, it, it, probably, probably neither of our faults, but I'm sure my initial response to yours was a bit more meandering than you would have want. But I, I feel. No, uh, mine was, mine was meandering. It's, it's a, it's a big, 
Um, it's a big sort of elephant we're trying to wrestle to the ground here and it requires, you know, some, some thinking through some, some live processing. Sure. Sure. Um, and that's that's to, to put it back on there. We explore here. We don't explain. And, and most of the time you and I don't even, uh, fully debrief, if at all, these conversations before we have to. So a lot of this happens in real time, but I do hear what you're saying now and, and, and feel very focused about like, we probably beat to death the drum of you matter, you listener matter. It does not matter your racial distinction, your sexual orientation, your um, class system, your whatever. You matter. You matter. And we can talk about the nuances of station and circumstance and personality and situation. We can talk about all of those different things and how those fit into the larger context of faithful living, the larger context of morality and accountability. We can talk about all of that, but you are not invisible. You matter. You are not worthless. You matter. You are not nothing. You matter. Every single choice that you make has an impact on the world around you. And but don't you feel, don't you feel like the, the, um, this is, this is fun. This is good. So I think, I think what is, it has become so challenging in the, the current state of our culture is as people of faith, we have said that a lot and we've not lived it. We've not acted. It no, no. And, and I think, I think that's what is so oppressively challenging to me in these days is I can't help but feel like, and this is what burdens me in a very powerful way and why I feel like a reshaping of language and activity are required to sustain healthy, faithful witness in the world. And that is so much of what we have said has just been the things we've said. It has not been, you know, uh, scriptures such as, you know, um, you said to me, Lord, Lord, I I never knew you like the thin, it's not a thin line. There's a thick line between singing praise songs on Sunday morning and actually in Brian Stevenson's words, being a stone catcher, Mm. like being the one who gives the cold water, who speaks out actively on behalf of those who not in a hyperbolic way are invisible. Right. Right. Are not seen and recognized by this culture that we are living in. And it, it burdens me on an almost daily basis. I get sort of (laughs) clearly flummoxed by exactly how to manifest this in a real way, you know, but, but I think, I think that is, I, I personally, and I know you would echo this, but you know, hopefully folks who listen to us, this will resonate some too. I'm so tired of the lip service. Yes. Yes. I'm so saddened by the state of the world we live in because we made it that way. Yeah. Well, by lip service and hear me, you know, make it that way. Like recognize the nuance of that phrase, but anyway, go ahead. Well, and let's, this just sort of works in my head. As a possible way to land at home, let's let's bring it back to this. People see right through lip service. People can it's transparent to people. You give them just mere lip service and they understand you're just shining them on. They understand that you're just telling them what you think they want to hear. And if a person does not feel known and seen 
and heard. Right. If a person right. does not feel tangible to you, then <laughs> your platitudes will fall on deaf ears. Your platitudes will make, will make no difference whatsoever. And I think it's important, you know, like th- this film is very much dealing with a man who is consumed by the mad power of anonymity. We've already dealt with that. But there's also, and we don't have time to go into all of this, but there's also the flip side of it too, that we do so at our peril to ignore the, those around us who are desperate to be seen, to, to ignore those who are desperate to be tangible to us, to have flesh and blood and face and need and to have those things spoken into. Right. And, you know, the, the, the scripture that I had in mind, and I bounced around on a couple of different ones. I'll, I'll bring in two very briefly. Isaiah 29 and chapter 5, or chapter 29, verse 15. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us or who knows us? But then also Psalm 90 and the eighth verse. I'm going to read the New Living Translation for this one because I'm chilled by what it says. It says, speaking of the Lord, it says, you spread out our sins before you, our secret sins, and you see them all. I think that one of the most terrifying and comforting, simultaneously, one of the most terrifying and comforting things is that you, we are not invisible to the Lord. We are not. Sure. Who we are, what we do, our hidden motivations, that we are very good at acting for the camera, <laughs> for the world. Uh, we may be able to fool everybody else, but be not deceived. God is not mocked. And it is terrifying when we think we've, we've fooled the system because we cannot fool him. And to me, it is deeply comforting when I recognize and feel alone and feel like, well, nobody else sees. He sees and he knows. And I deeply believe that there will come a time when the light of his presence, uh, makes all things visible and all things known that those of us who are, who are, you know, sort of harboring our deep secret sins. Yeah. They, they will find us out. Uh, there, there will come a time where they will be made known. Uh, they will, uh, we will not be able to hold them forever because the Lord sees the Lord knows. And if you're somebody who feels alone or feels desperate, take comfort in that. If you're somebody who feels rather arrogant and proud that you've gotten away with a number of things, take some, take some heed. And, and take some caution, uh, because even the most invisible among us are not invisible to him. Boom. <laughs> um, <laughs> on that note. So yeah, that was, uh, that was a fascinating discussion. <laughs> That's unexpected. Uh, but, uh, you know, as we say on every episode, you, you could say, you could say that we didn't see that coming. Ah, that's true. That's, that's a good point. Well, the fear of God <laughs> is the beginning of wisdom. But it's not the end of the conversation. So if you have more to say on that, I know we brushed up against some big elephantine uh, subjects here. That's a great word. That's a good word. <laughs> I know That's you like love ridiculous. the words, so I'm just going to. I do. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I know we've brushed up against some some rather gargantuan subjects. If you if there's anything that you have to add to the conversation, uh, we would love to hear about it. And you can do so in a variety of ways. You can reach out to us. Probably the easiest and best way is through Twitter. Nathan, what is our Twitter handle? At the fear of God. You can also like us on Facebook. There's a link to that through Twitter. You can post there or leave a comment on one of our posts. You can also follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter besides the fear of God? 
at the Nathan Rouse. And you can also go to morethanonelesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official posts for these uh, for this show. You can also email us, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate an iTunes review. We, uh, we certainly are in the it's part of the mission of this show to explore, uh, even, even if we don't always have all of the answers. It's definitely not the mission of this show to, uh, compartmentalize things into neat, packageable little bows. But I think that, I think that these things are worth considering and that these things are worth taking heed for and worth discussing. All of that to say, Thank you very much, Nathan Rouse, for having this discussion with me. You're very welcome. I don't know if you recognize that we're skipping David S. Pumpkins here. Oh, my goodness. We, Look we at need, that. I know. How can you forget? How can we How forget? How can I do that? That is crazy. The, the one and only David S. Pumpkins. We'll, we'll, we'll do it quickly, and then we'll sign off. So, um, as we do every episode, every movie uh, that we're, we're dealing with here, we do measure uh, by a very particular metric, that of David S. Pumpkins, the Saturday Night Live Tom Hanks Halloween-themed character, which is lovely, um, and our unofficial mascot and uh, three specific categories on a ranking of zero to five, that being style scares and substance. So in succinct fashion, my good friend. So how would you rank the invisible man on style on style? You got to remember, this is my favorite of the universal movies. So I'm going to give it a five. I love it. Whoa. Wow. All right. I love it. Um, I'm going to give it, I'm going to, um, I, it had a lot going for it, um, on a certain level. I'm going to give it a 3.5. All right. Um, and as far as scares go for me, I think the conceit has a bit more sort of foreboding nature to it than the actual on screen. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go with a three on scares. Okay. As we say with every universal monster movie, the, the, the fears are a bit dated. Um, so I think I'm also going to land, I'm going to land at a 3.5. For scares. What I love about it is not its fear factor. Right. And so how about substance for you, my friend? So substance, I think I think we've sort of bandied about some things that weren't necessarily in the text of the film. So for substance, sure. I'm gonna for substance, I'm actually gonna give it a three point five. Um I will land at a three on substance. All right. So that means that we give the invisible man our favorite ranking of anything. Seven out of ten, David S. Pumpkins. You know, generally on average, you we go. love giving films a seven because it's you know, well, it's a number of completions. We're generous. Yeah, we are we're, pretty. Generous. We're, we're generous fellows. Um, um, in the spirit of that, read next week. So this is our penultimate Universal Monster proper. Um, what are we companioning this with? So may seem a bit. Uh, we are definitely not companioning it with the Hollow Man. Uh, because that no. movie's awful. No, I wanted to go in a different direction, and I subjected you, you're welcome and I'm sorry, to a viewing of 1986 David Cronenberg's The Fly. So, ladies and gentlemen, next week... Oh, I thought you were just referring to the Breaking Bad episode, The Fly. Oh, um, no. So, I you watched a different years. thing? Well, you've got a week. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, ladies and gentlemen, next week... We are going to be discussing the, I consider it a, an iconic entry in the horror canon. Uh, we are going to be discussing David Cronenberg's film from 1986 starring Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, The Fly. So um, visit us at that point uh, next week. And Nathan, again, thank you so much for having this conversation with me, man. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, my friend. And you're always visible to me. Oh, thank you. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see you next week, everybody. Bye.